another welcome to Gears of Progress, a perfect place to learn about research and rehab engineering and assistive tech. As usual, I'm your host, Sasha, a postdoc at the University of Washington, and this is episode number three. Today, in my little postdoc office studio, we have Charlotte Kasky. Uh, an expert in spinal stem application for uh, lower limb rehabilitation. And uh, we're going to find out more on all the exciting things she has been doing before and is doing now and where she's going to take that next. So welcome in. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Okay. Um, My very first question that I really like asking is, um, I see you have been doing some summer internship. I'm assuming that's uh, high school times or was it during undergrad? Um, Both, actually. Okay. And they were very biomechanics unrelated. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) So you started in like civil engineering and um, doing some earth science work. How did you end up coming to the space of uh, rehabilitation engineering, assistive technology, and biomechanics overall? Yeah, well, we're going way back. That's fun mm-hmm. to think back um, about that decision process. So yeah, when I was um, like before my senior year of high school, I interned in a lab in civil engineering at Clemson University where I grew up. And they just had some work they needed to get done. And I was interested in civil engineering at the time because I just liked bridges and building and that concept of growth. Um, and I really enjoyed working in the lab. Um, and got to meet some really awesome people and had a great PI. But while on that project, I was like, oh, I'd really like it if these things moved. <laughs> um, and so, and I also just had a really strong interest in working with people and helping others and having that like human connection in my work. And so the combination of do- those two things kind of wanted me to look for more engineering that was more applied and more on that human focus interaction because all engineering is ultimately working to help people and help society, but being really close towards the, the human side was kind of my interest. And so when I was applying to college, I was looking for schools that had like a biomedical engineering degree. And that's what I ended up doing my undergraduate degree in. Um, and then through that degree program, the professors there and some internships during um, my undergraduate degree, I got into the space that I'm in now. Awesome. Yeah, I saw you got to volunteer at an orthotics clinic. I did. Uh, would you like sharing uh, about that experience? Absolutely. That's actually a little bit of a funny story. Um, so one of my, um, I guess, like roommates, my freshman year of college was in a scholarship program I was in. And so we kind of got to know each other. And um, it's really hard to get an internship after that freshman year of college. Like you're not quite have enough experience for, for much and so it can be challenging. And so I was applying to a lot of research positions. It didn't quite get anything, which is okay. So I was looking, what else can I do? Um, and this friend, I had was chatting with her and she was like, oh, well, if you're interested, my parents live near a rehabilitation hospital, Vidant Medical Center in Greenville, North Carolina. And uh, she so kindly was like, oh, if you want to come, like my parents love having people like stay with them. You can come stay for the summer and vault potentially volunteer there or shadow. And it was, of course, like fully unpaid. And I was like, that's awesome. Um, I'm interested, but like I'd never met her family before, had never been to the area. And she also actually started a summer camp um, for kids at risk youth, um, more focused on like sustainability and environmental Mm -hmm. work. 
And so she was like, if you have time, you could volunteer at the summer camp to kind of like pay it forward and help them out and then also volunteer at the um, clinic. So I literally was we called with her parents, worked it out. Um, and I ended up staying with them for the summer, like lived in their like attic over their garage um, after having never met them. Um, so they were so kind. Um, my parents kindly paid them some money to offset cost of things. So I just like lived up there. My parents loaned me a car and I shadowed in the morning with the Biden Medical Center. And just like for them, I literally called them over and over until someone answered the phone and was like, hi, I really want to volunteer with the prosthetic and orthotics clinic. Uh, at first they were like, this is weird. Most people come ask to volunteer and we just assign them to a spot where we're needed. Mm-hmm. And the prosthetics and orthotics clinic didn't usually take volunteers. Um, but I was able to get them on the phone, explain my interest and persuade them <laughs> that I would be fun to be there. And um, they were really kind to let me in to mostly shadow. But I also got to see a little bit of their workshop space and help out with a few things. Um, and then this family that I stayed with for the summer that kindly took me in. I'm still friends with them. and nice. still see them. So it was definitely a connection through a friend and just looking for anything that would give me an experience where I could learn more. And at the time I was considering um, like piano school. Great. So it was cool to see that firsthand. Did you get to do anything fun in the piano clinic? Prosthetics and orthotics? <laughs> I definitely, it was really cool to be able to walk around like the hospital and see people um, who were being fitted for devices. A lot of their building they did out of house and then they would just like adjust things in house mm-hmm. um, because it was like strictly for patients. So I wasn't really allowed to do anything, yes. but it was really cool to see how they fit things, th- their considerations like something I had never thought about is people who are um, maybe in a coma or like not moving, we have to think about bed sores and how we can prevent contracture even in muscles if they're there for Mm -hmm. months. So they have like ankle foot orthoses that they fit for people to help um, keep their ankles aligned while they're not able to move. Uh, Yeah. And so you go in and they would assess someone who maybe wasn't responsive, but they Mm -hmm. could assess and look for, um, okay, where might they be risking pressure points? Like, how can we fit a device to help prevent that? Or even like like chest braces for someone who maybe had an injury and needs to like remain still once they are up and ready to move. So it was things like that mainly um, that we were working on. Okay. So since we're sitting here and you are a PhD student in Cat Steele's lab at the University of Washington, you obviously didn't go the piano route. Uh, what distracted you? That's a great question. So I, I really like the PO space and just like the way they problem solve. You come in and every person is different. So getting to problem solve um, to figure out what device can best maybe help someone or assist them. And then everyone's different and unique. So developing that personalized equipment for someone. Um, but I did see a lot of like limitations and I got to hear a lot of complaints from people about, you know, limitations of their devices or assistive technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that combined with my interest of like wanting to problem solve and get critical thinking engineering mm-hmm. side kind of led me a little bit more on the research space and wanting to be a little more on the design and evaluation and helping mm-hmm. get new, new techniques out and available um, to people from that, like translating the research into the clinic space. Do, do you feel like the technology that we oftentimes prescribe is very outdated um, or... That's an interesting question because I feel like my research now is not as so much in the orthotic space. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't say like I'm an expert in that space. But um, I think there is a disconnect because sometimes as researchers, we'll find something really exciting and maybe in a you know limited sample size. And we're always, you know, we, we don't know if it'll work for everyone. We don't know if it'll be personalized to work for everyone. 
but we it is important to get okay what we find as researchers to the actual clinicians and so you know conferences and papers and things can help connect that but there is going to be a delay from the research side into the actual like clinic piece so i don't would necessarily say things are out of date but um basically how can we help as researchers support new ideas and novel techniques mm-hmm. to, to improve that clinical translation i think is something to continue to work on absolutely um i also saw that you got to do some research in uh oco integration yes which um do you mind talking a bit more about that I, i think it's a pretty cool thing that i know took forever to be approved in the u.s has been long approved in europe before that yes yeah definitely um that's just such an interesting thing to like learn about in australia they're doing a lot in australia mm-hmm. right now with osseo integration as well it started out for those who don't know osseo integration osseo integration is the process of kind of fitting a prosthetic to the actual bone itself. And so implanting it more directly with the body instead of inf- interfacing on the exterior. And it's actually pretty popular in like dental applications with like teeth. Um, but there's been a recent move towards uh, like our larger extremities and like arms and legs that we can also integrate. And that's what I got to do when I was um, uh, in SF. Well, I guess it wasn't in SF. It was NIH intern um, during my college career at the National Institute of Health in Bethesda, Maryland. And I basically hopped across the street and actually worked in Walter Reed um, Medical Center. And they were doing, they're still actually ongoing right now, a huge clinical trial evaluating osteointegration for people who have both upper and lower extremity amputation. And I think their primary focus has also been transfemoral amputation because a lot of times There are situations where sockets, which is the more traditional mm-hmm. um, prosthetic device, are pretty uncomfortable and or don't work well because there's not maybe enough residual limb to fit properly. And so that's been the primary focus with, I think, some actually was fortunate to meet these colleagues at the American Society of Biomechanics last month and catch, catch up with them. And it sounds like they may be doing some work with transtibial amputees as well soon. Mm-hmm. Um, so my primary work was actually really early in their process. I got to meet a few people who had gone through the actual surgery. Mm-hmm. And then I was helping with some of the biomechanical analysis in their gate lab, wanting to understand if we have this osteo-integrated device, is there actually better movement compared to their um, socket prior to the, the surgery? Which is a challenging question because in some cases people did not have a socket. Mm-hmm. They weren't able to use a socket. So the big outcome was, oh, they can walk now or they are able to move. And it is a long process. So the surgery obviously takes time. And then there's the recovery piece. Yeah. And you have to load the implant slowly over time to pr- to give the bone time to integrate, really get mm-hmm. that true osseointegration um, between bone and implant. And so there's a gradual loading process before they can start like walking, walking on them. Um, so my main role was kind of getting it started, helping with some of the initial analysis and um, going through and organizing a lot of their like notes and figuring out, okay, what are their primary kind of focuses for this, this work. And it was really cool to see the translation between their like doctors, researchers, all in the same building space um, and kind of getting the early data together for that. Okay. Yeah. I see. Um, so you graduated from UNC, is that right? NC State. NC so State. close. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you decided to start applying for grad school. Mm-hmm. You landed over here. Yes. What was 
what was the decision motivated by? The decision for grad school or the decision for, to uh, jump across the country? Jump across the country into the lab over here at the University of Washington. Yeah. Um, so when I applied for grad schools, I was really going for experience and places that interest me. And so I actually applied all over the country. I saw grad school as a short-term opportunity to try a new place and learn new things, both professionally and personally. So I applied all the way from east to west coast. I think Seattle was the farthest, University of Washington. So <laughs> much to uh, my family's surprise, I picked the furthest away. Um, so I really did apply all over and focus on looking for a PI that I was interested in working with and um, found Kat Steele and was really excited about her work. Um, and it ended up being a really great fit. Yeah. Awesome. Um, how soon did you get to jump on the exciting project you um, are now uh, or did you get to do anything else i was trying to look for papers but <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely so when i when i came so kind of like the process from undergrad to grad school um dr Steele like interviewed me during my senior year and i came up for a visit after she had sent an offer and i got to meet some of the research that was ongoing current students as well as her collaborations with other labs and part of that was getting to meet Chet Moritz, who's a professor mainly in electrical engineering here, but he also does like rehab sciences and physiology. So he's very widespread. Mm -hmm. And his expertise is in spinal cord injury and how we can use non-invasive spinal cord injury, um, sorry, non-invasive spinal cord stimulation um, for people with spinal cord injury. And when I came for that visit, I got to see a little bit of their work. And uh, Kat mentioned that they're actually we're applying together for a grant um, using spinal cord stimulation for children with cerebral palsy, which had really only been done by one group at that point in time. One paper that was out there mm -hmm. um, had showed promising results, but then that had kind of been it. And the efficacy of spinal cord stimulation for people with spinal cord injury was really promising and is much further along in the field. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to, they had an interest in diving into that space for CP and I was like, oh, this is really exciting. I really like this. I would love to be on this project, but they didn't know if they had the funding yet. Mm -hmm. So I, I I was actually driving across the country because I did drive from coast to coast wow. when we moved. That's exciting. Um, and was driving across the country when I got an email from Kat that said, hey, we got the funding. Here's like the direction we're thinking. And so it was actually right when I got here that I knew I was going to get to work on that project. But it started out with me actually kind of shadowing and helping with some of Chet Moritz's work with people with spinal cord injury mm -hmm. first and learning what I could about the application of spinal cord stimulation, as well as like, how does how do we assess these outcomes? What are we learning so far? Um, and for that, I worked with Fatma Enianchi, who's now a professor at UW, and Soshi Samjima, who's also starting as a professor um, soon. So they really have an ongoing work here with spinal cord stimulation. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly for upper limb application? They have done, right now they're doing a lot of upper limb, but there is, um, they do have some work out that I helped with, with the lower extremities. Lower extremities. Yeah. Okay. That I think is a little bit newer and hopefully some some ongoing stuff in the future. Awesome. Um, just to, let's, let's take a step back sure. uh, for people who don't really understand how spinal stimulation or spinal stem, as we call it, mm -hmm. uh, works. Can you explain a bit more? Absolutely. So spinal stim is definitely kind of sounds scary at first because you're like, oh, what is this? So it's electrical stimulation that is applied non-invasively to the spinal cord. This can be done invasively as well, but I'll be 
our work is focused on non-invasives. That's important to keep in mind. If anyone's ever seen like a TENS unit or an FES unit or NMES, these kind of like muscle stimulators, it actually looks pretty similar. Mm -hmm. Similar. It's a sticker that goes on the back that connects to a device separate. And so um, we put two electrodes on the spine and we put two electrodes quite a bigger on the hips. That's the ground. So it enters the spine, exits through the hips. That's kind of what it looks like. I see. Okay. And um, so your application at the moment is um, getting children with CP, cerebral palsy, to um, start walking, emulate gait. Do do you want to share more? (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So the spinal cord stimulation, based on our work in both animal models, um, computer models, and work with uh, other individuals with neurological conditions so far... We think this spinal stem works by boosting sensory feedback Mm -hmm. in the spinal cord. And then when we have more sensory feedback, our brain actually gets more engaged in the activity that we're doing. And so that can alter the control of the motor output. Mm -hmm. And so in spinal cord injury, we're simulating the spinal cord and hopefully kind of increasing that communication from the spinal cord to brain that may have been disrupted with the injury. With children with cerebral palsy, they have a brain injury around the time they're born. Mm -hmm. And that actually affects the development of the spinal cord too. And the brain, of course, because our spinal cord and brain are not fully developed until after we're born. And so with spinal stimulation in this population, we think it might be able to, again, boost that communication, that sensory feedback, mm-hmm. and actually prompt greater input from the brain that that is there and alter the kind of the control and organization of the spinal cord. And that's kind of the leading hypothesis that we're looking on assessing and wanting to quantify how when we use the spinal stimulation, is that affecting motor output uh, and movement? And one of the key pieces as well with this spinal stim is that we don't just stick it on them and let them go on their way and then come back later and quantify. Because we think the spinal stim affects sensory Mm -hmm. information, we pair it with physical activity. So with or and with like physical therapy, where we're focused on a particular outcome or goal. Mm -hmm. Because if we're increasing that sensory information and the communication, we want to have some control over the sensory information that we're, we're boosting and sending back. Um, I'll also add that it's what we call submotor threshold. So unlike where you might simulate a muscle and you could get a muscle response right away, we're simulating low enough that you don't get that muscle response. In fact, some participants don't even feel it, or mm-hmm. those who feel it say it feels like a tingle or like one kid actually said it feels like a water gun shooting at his back. <laughs> um, and so we provide it sub-motor thresholds that we're just boosting the natural pathway communications already there. We're not um, sending a signal or initiating a muscle contraction on our our own. And so that's why, again, pairing it with an activity, like, for example, a walking task, Mm -hmm. that's the information that's going to be sending back to the brain. And that's what's going to be boosted in the communication. I see. So the person themselves is initiating the... If it's lower limb, then it's walking mm-hmm. or so, some some form of uh, walking. Yes. Um, upper limb, then it's reaching, grasping, whatever yeah. it is. I see. Yeah. That's very exciting. Um, do you mind sharing the uh, exciting things that I, some of the videos that I have seen <laughs> of the results of uh, spinal stem and kids with CP? Absolutely. I'm happy to share. There's since I mentioned, like when we started this work, there was only one paper out there. It was really (laughs) early. There have been, I think now three other papers that have been published and they do have some great videos. So if anyone listening is interested, I'd strongly encourage you to search for um, spinal stimulation in CP 
and look for some of those recent papers. Um, they do have some great videos showing kids who have, in the videos, you can see they maybe have some challenge coordinating their muscle activity to create a stepping pattern. But after turning on the simulation and giving it time to ramp up, they're able to generate this like cyclical stepping pattern. And that's actually, we think it happens or can happen quickly because we have in our spinal cord central pattern generators, mm -hmm. which are pathways that kind of automate walking. So those are probably kind of the first to respond mm -hmm. in the walking task. But then what our group has been primarily focusing on is not just one day of spinal stim, but what if we add it to your physical therapy for 24 sessions? Mm -hmm. And does that improve your response to that physical therapy? I see. And so um, what we've seen is that, we, yes, we think it is. Um, and that those changes are actually lasting even months after they finish their physical therapy. So it's really exciting. We're seeing a lasting change, um, not just an immediate response while the device is on. And so what we've been doing is quantifying um, short burst interval locomotor treadmill training, or SBLTT for short. That's our um, physical therapy that we pair with the spinal stim. We've been comparing how children with CP respond to that therapy on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, with the eight-week washout, and then the same physical therapy with the spinal simulation. And then we have a 12-week follow-up. Do you want to explain what a washout is? Absolutely. <laughs> it's a very research-related term. <laughs> yes. So washout um, is the time we put between two intervention periods to give someone a time to kind of go back to baseline. And so the reason we need that in this study is that each person is kind of their own control in the research setting. Mm -hmm. So in a research setting, it's good to have a control group that tells you what would happen if I didn't apply this intervention mm -hmm. so I can compare the two. Because children with CP respond really differently and we aren't sure yet who might be a responder and not a responder, mm -hmm. we started our study with what we call like a case series where each participant has the treadmill training, the control period. Mm -hmm. Then they have a break where we kind of give them time to wash out and go back to baseline. And then they have that same therapy with the spinal stem, the like intervention piece. And I'd more ideal scenario, we'd actually randomize that order yes. so we can kind of prevent any bias. Right now, we've only actually done four people so far. We just have some pilot data. Mm -hmm. And so we haven't quite had the bandwidth to swap the order. And um, so hopefully we're, we'll do some future work where we get to swap that, that order. Yeah. Um, what are the youngest uh, participants we've seen? Yeah, me personally, I've worked ages four to 14 okay. so far. Um, some of the other work by other researchers, they have gone as young as about one year old. I see. And is there, um, going back to this idea that um, with, you know, for example, if it's a spinal cord injury that's acquired much later, we're talking about a developed spinal cord, a developed mm -hmm. uh, brain, but with kids that... Um, had CP um, much, much earlier than we are talking about a differently structured uh, brain and the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. Is there any idea with, you know, kind of with the spinal stem uh, doing it earlier on to, um, to kind of stimulate the the development of uh, brain and the spinal cord in in the right direction. Yeah, that, that's a great question. That we yes, the uh, the leading kind of ideas that we think earlier could potentially uh, be more beneficial mm -hmm. because our brain is very plastic. It's a word that neuroscientists love to use, and it's the idea that our brain is not set in stone. It changes over time, and it does that based on learning new information. Um, 
strengthens pathways, whereas mm-hmm. information we don't use, those pathways weaken and it gets reallocated. It's all about efficiency and output of information. Mm-hmm. And so everyone has a plastic brain and spinal cord throughout life, but children are more plastic or neuroplasticity is higher yes. is the word we like to use. And so we think it might be more beneficial to intervene earlier with the spinal stem because there's more kind of time for adaptation and it's kind of more malleable mm-hmm. um, in the brain. So that's kind of the interest in getting like a younger population, but there haven't been any like strict studies showing if it does make a difference. There's no reason right now to think someone older isn't going to respond mm-hmm. um, to this, the, the spinal stem. I see. Um, so I chatted with Mia in the last episode about uh, her work with children mm-hmm. uh, being participants and the, fun parts and the difficult parts. Uh, What are some of the difficulties that you are running into when having children participating as young as four or as young as one? I don't know if you got to observe that at all. I got to observe a little bit, um, but I was not hands-on for sure. I think when you get from like one or even like younger than one and then you go to four there's this development of walking mm-hmm. <laughs> um that is a fun challenge i will first of all say i love working with kids they make it so much fun uh and a lot of them like every kid's different but some kids really want to know about the science and we're always happy to talk about what we're doing explain what's yeah. going on if they're at an age to maybe understand some of that um some kids love learning about the numbers we'll even show them some of their results as they're working or walking on the treadmill whatever we can like real time to show them what we're seeing mm-hmm. And that's a great way to get kids engaged and interested. And I think it's just great to, to learn um, for them to see what we're doing. Uh, and a lot of kids come in and their goal is to have a fun time. So we'll, we, half the time we're like playing hide and go seek between, you know, if they need a little break off the treadmill, we're trying to get them engaged in other ways. Um, but it can be a challenge because getting kids to do what you want them to do is one thing. And then getting them to do it while they're also maybe wearing some sensors where mm-hmm. we want to look at muscle activity or... We also put reflective markers on to track their movement in the gate lab. And so persuading them not to pull that off and throw it across the room um, is part of the part of the challenge. But um, and also, of course, getting them to do the task. So if we're like, oh, yeah, I want you to walk in a clean, straight line across the lab and not get distracted by someone else who's over in the other room or something like that. So we have a fun learning each kid's individual like motivators, mm-hmm. as I, clinicians like to refer to them as like what is something they're excited about. Mm-hmm how can we make this more fun for them and how can we kind of engage them in the activity? Um, but I have walked out of the lab with like tape on my face because getting someone to stand still, they, they cover me in tape while I get them taped up yeah. with some sensors is a good trade off. Um, and I've even will take turns doing walking tests or, or things like that. So they kind of feel like they're not doing it by themselves. <laughs> I see. That's interesting. Um, I feel like sometimes, you know, uh, this type of very clinical research. Uh, I would say yours yours is very clinical. Um, it has to be, or um, we view it as a very conservative uh, type of research. Like things are very, like they have to be done in a very particular matter. You know, you have to do these very particular outcome measures or these very particular tests. Um, where, uh, when I got to chat with, uh, Mia, you know, her her goal was to, you know, as, as she says, her motto is let the kids be kids and just try to, um, do research and observe them while they're in their natural habitat. (laughs) How did you, did, did you ever feel like, you know, you need to, um, 
step back from uh, this very um, clean research um, that we're used to, you know, we're inviting a participant and hey, yeah, do the walk in a straight line for uh, six minutes at uh, self-selected speed. And that's probably the only uh, variation we can allow <laughs> with the self-selected speed. But with kids, you know, having two, I can say that um, that would be a challenge to do <laughs> with the yeah. kids. It's definitely a trade-off for sure, because in some sense, we can try to control the research science environment as much as possible and then, you know, be able to say, okay, if everyone walk at this exact same speed and this exact same distance, this is our outcome. But then we have to also ask the question is how translatable is that to how a kid actually walks in the community? Mm -hmm. And so there's definitely a trade-off there. And so for some situations, we are trying to create like a controlled environment and then we will try to be consistent. But there's other situations where I do encourage them to just do what you want to do. And that's what we want to quantify. Um, One example of that is that in addition to us doing in-lab assessments, we also send them home with an accelerometer on their ankle and a GPS. Mm -hmm. And so we quantify how are they moving in the community and then we can get information of, we can see, did they walk a lot more at school or at home? Did they maybe go to the park more after an intervention? Like, are they getting more engaged? Um, after and actually one of our one of our family members they one of their they had their kid actually wear a Fitbit at all times just to track how mm-hmm. much they were moving, and they often had a goal of you know hitting ten thousand steps a day with him so that if he didn't reach out at school or or physical therapy they would maybe go to the park at mm-hmm. the end of the day, and this was a frequent thing they usually had to go to the park um, throughout the study but then when he actually started doing the spinal stimulation portion of the study his parents said that he was coming home really tired and was hitting his step goal on his own at school. Wow. So we were actually seeing that he was like engaging more with his peers in play mm-hmm. in a way we couldn't quantify in the lab. Um, but we were able to get that from these like sensors out in the lab. And his mom asked him, why are you running around so much more? And he said, well, everyone's chasing me. I have to run away. <laughs> hey, that's great. Um, so dreaming. things that we, again, we didn't really control that and we weren't really even sure that was going to like happen, but mm-hmm. just being able to capture how, these affect his choice to play or interact with peers is really important. Absolutely, Yeah. I really um, like what you did there in terms of, you know, you're not just studying um, the clinical intervention that you're doing in the lab, which is again, a very clean setting, but you came up with a way of uh, trying to see if there is any effect once they go into the community. I, I think that's, um, it's uh, a goal that we should all in rehab research um, have in mind uh, because, again, I have seen so many technologies that just, you know, they are doing so great in a lab setting because it's very sterile. Um, and once they're in, a, in this very, you know, quotation marks, dirty environment of uh, the uh, out in the real world, they, they, they fail. Um I mean, uh, prosthetics or, you know, there are so many examples of that. Um, And yeah, I like seeing that. Um, Are you also doing some spinal stim work with uh, exoskeletons? Uh, yes, if I understand correctly. <laughs> if I heard, if my sources are right. <laughs> yes, your sources are right. Um, Yes, I am doing a little bit of work with combining the spinal stem with some exoskeletons because, as I mentioned, sensory feedback we think is really important f- with the physical therapy. And we're seeing, again, those promising outcomes, mainly with that long study where we were just doing the treadmill training. We're seeing 
huge improvements in spasticity mm-hmm. and increased mobility. And so for those who don't know, spasticity is muscle tightness when trying to move. And that can ha- commonly happen in people after neurological injury. And so seeing improvements in spasticity while also um, increase in like walking function is a really exciting outcome because a lot of times people learn to rely on their spasticity and then even though spasticity might improve with, an, with a currently available intervention, mm-hmm. there's actually a reduction in walking function because they were relying on that spasticity. I see. And so that's been really exciting in that study. But one of the challenges we have faced is how to optimize the stimulation parameters to the individual person. Mm-hmm. And because we're focused on sensory feedback, is this the best task to have them walking on a treadmill? It's a very controlled environment. Mm-hmm which is great because like, we can like control treatment. It's that mm-hmm. balance you're just you're just talking about. We can control treatment. We can control their speed and time. It's very controlled. But is that translating to other things? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's only so much about their movement you can control on a treadmill. And so some of my newer work is pairing the spinal stim with a device called the Spark by Biomodem. Mm-hmm. It's an ankle exoskeleton that can provide a torque at the ankle to either help lift the toes up when walking Mm -hmm. or provide a little bit of resistance. So you have to work a little bit harder to get your toes up. And we've been using that in that resistance mode as actually a training device. If you can think of it as a workout, but targeted with timing as well. So while you're walking, it's giving you a workout of when to trigger that muscle activation. Mm -hmm. And so we think potentially pairing the spinal stem with an exoskeleton like that might be able to target specific muscle groups or really give that more specific sensory feedback about, oh, I want you to activate this muscle at this point in time Mm -hmm. and help that to kind of trigger a target. And for kids with CP, oftentimes their plantar flexors or those calf muscles Mm -hmm. that you use to go up on your toes um, can be really tight. And so getting them to kind of engage those muscles at the right timing in the gait cycle is kind of our focus now with exoskeletons. I see. That's pretty cool. I had a thought and it ran away from me. <laughs> I went through a lot of things in that one bout, so. <laughs> um, give me a sec. I, I was thinking of something. Um, I was just thinking about the coolness of the, the, the entire word exoskeleton. I feel like sounds very, as Kat used to say, it's a very sexy word. And sometimes <laughs> we prefer to use that over orthotics, right? Which is technically another way of mm-hmm. uh, saying that, but. Because I was thinking, you know, ankle, foot, orthosis. But um, you mentioned um, spinal stem. You have to find the right balance for each person. So this is a very individual thing. Is that is that what you're seeing? It's not really uh, one size fits all. You have to really um, play around. Yes and no. Well, that's tough. <laughs> so in, in some sense, like we're, we, there's some things we know, or we could, we're pretty clear, like, okay, we can put on the electrodes in our locations mm-hmm. and apply a stimulation level, and that's going to boost that sensory communication. But what we're also wanting to understand is how to maximize, benefit, how can we optimize this treatment? And it seems that one thing we modulate during sessions is the amplitude mm-hmm. at that simulation. So how much are we providing that assist to yeah. the neuro- neurological system? And that's something that's highly individualized. So currently, it's a lot of talking with the participant, how they're feeling, but kids don't always give the best feedback in that situation. So it's us observing how they're walking, um, looking for muscle contraction. We don't want to get a muscle contraction. We want to be below muscle contraction level. And this can actually, 
vary even like as someone goes through the training, their body might adjust and become accustomed and you may need to adjust the level. So we're working to kind of find a more, I guess, like a more protocoled way to make it more repeatable where like if we I trained you and you went and found the kids optimal stimulation parameters, mm-hmm. we'd get to the same number. Because I think that's something we need to work on as as a research um, community. Um, but right now, I mean we can we can still capture thumb some things just observing. You can mm-hmm. see changes. Um, or if we're overstimulating you their muscles are contracting, they may be stumbling a little bit and that means we need to back off a little bit. Okay. Things like that. Um, that's kind of the main way that it's individualized. Um, yeah. Um what do you what do you see the future of spinal stim being? You know, um, you go through clinical trials, you, let's say, you prove its efficacy. Uh, what do you want the future of spinal stim to be? Yeah, I think it would be great if it was available in clinics for people to use. So again, you're going in for your physical therapy, it maybe adds five minutes to mm-hmm. just put on the device, total time, put on and take off. So if a kid could come in and receive spinal stim while they're receiving their, their physical therapy to boost those outcomes, mm-hmm. I think that would be awesome and just have it really available for, for anyone who who's going for physical therapy. I see. Is there, well, this is going to be a crazy question, I feel like, but <laughs> maybe it's because I don't fully, like my brain doesn't fully um, capture the essence of okay. spinal stim. Is this something that could be possibly, uh, you know, be slapped on for the entire day and be, uh, is there a talk about that? Because I mean, we're only talking right now in terms of uh, use for therapy, but mm-hmm. something to kind of like, oh, you know, I, I need some spinal stim now. <laughs> you know? There is talk about that. I okay. will say that there is talk about it, but there's a lot of hesitation about it. I think I keep coming back to this theme of sensory feedback and movement and mm-hmm. how like we're boosting the neurological pathway, there is concern that if we stuck it on someone and they weren't being kind of told or taught that movement piece Mm -hmm. and that thus influencing the sensory feedback piece, you actually could maybe learn the wrong way to do something. I see. Not that there's necessarily a wrong way to do things, but we think about that neuroplasticity in the brain's Mm -hmm. adaptability. Um, If we're controlling the input to the brain, we don't want to give it maybe input that's not going to be helpful yeah the goal is to give it positive input so i think it would be great to move towards a you know again increasing access to this and is it something where you know it's small enough it's light enough can families bring it home can a pt go to a home and use it with a kid and maybe use it during their play or their activity and it'd be that way but there's still someone there to kind of provide that feedback and assistance Um, and i don't think we know for sure yet if how important that is Mm -hmm. um but right now there's definitely a concern that it could have like it wouldn't benefit the same if we just sent them home with it and they just, oh, I need some STEM. I'm going to turn it on today. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, participants are adults with spinal cord injury who have used it before, though. They use it in the lab. A lot of them have described when they go home after they still feel like amped up from mm-hmm. the STEM. So it's, we think there's like, even a lasting effect after their PT. And so some of them have gone home and one in particular, like practice guitar. He used to play guitar before his spinal cord injury. Mm-hmm. didn't have that hand function. Mm-hmm. Um, for he was injured like 10 years prior to being in the study. He came home, worked on it, you know, for months while he was in the study and actually recovered the ability to play the guitar. It wasn't during his PT. It was his choice to go home and work on it after it was over. Okay. So uh, what I'm hearing is that spinal stem is probably great uh, in some modulation um, with some feedback 
from uh, clinicians, and but it also has the potential, ideally, that's what we would like to see, right, is to um, encourage that um, movement back in, in the individuals who have either lost it um, during spinal cord, um, after spinal cord injury or uh, with CP. Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that this concept, again, of neuroplasticity in the Mm -hmm. brain, one of the key concepts is repetition and repeating a task over and over is how you learn something, right? So if you're learning to play an instrument, you learn and you do it repeatedly. And so I think it's the same idea with the spinal sim as if you're going to do it, doing that task repeatedly. So again, maybe wearing it and not being consistent in tasks may not have the same benefit, but being consistent, like, oh, I have this goal I want to learn. I'm going to use it Mm -hmm. while I'm trying to learn that goal. Maybe something like that could work. Interesting. Um, but it just hasn't been – we don't know for sure yet how structured we need to be in that. Um, so it's cool to hear from our participants what they think and what yeah. they're experiencing as well. Did this person get to play guitar during therapy at all? I don't think he did. This was um, right as I got here. So I, I was never okay. there for any of his sessions. Um, he was in one of the upper extremity states. So his therapy was upper extremity focused, mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, he actually might have been in both an upper and a lower study. So – I don't, I don't know if he played it in therapy, though. Okay, good to know. Um, it's going to be a deviation, but I saw you got an ethics minor. I did. Um, <laughs> did she get to use any of uh, the knowledge you gained uh, in that minor, or what was the reason even to uh, pursue? Yeah, I pursued the minor because I had, like, come in with some like AP credits in in college. And so as many of us are, you know, you could take classes for fun. And I was like, oh, I kind of want those to work towards something. What is that? Taking classes for fun. (laughs) Never heard of it. That is totally a thing. (laughs) I took um, African dance when I was an undergrad and it was super fun. So you should definitely take classes for fun. Um, uh, Yeah. So I was taking classes for fun though for uh, outside of my engineering major and I'm passionate about like biomedical ethics and thinking about all these devices we work on. Mm -hmm. The ultimate goal is to benefit the people that we work with. And so how can we do that safely without putting anyone at risk, without um, taking advantage of anyone, all of those important pieces of research. And so I got into the ethics interest and decided to just like focus on the classes. Um, It was lots of physiology that I'm not good or sorry, not physiology, uh, philosophy Mm -hmm. that um, physiology you're good with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Two similar words, very different things. Um, philosophy, that was like a challenge for me, but it was really, the, in, the major was really cool for just like learning the different perspectives and things to think about. Um, in Because there were actually, I took a couple classes within that that were biomedical focus. And so talking about challenges in healthcare and how can we make forward doing like equitable healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, so in my work, it definitely comes into play because was working, especially with kids, it's a vulnerable population. Mm-hmm. We want to make sure that we're giving them the best experience and it's their choice to be there. No one involved in any of our studies required to be there and we don't want them to feel coerced into being there, anything like that. So that background was helpful when considering like um, the Institutional Review Board or IRB for mm-hmm. short, that's required for any clinical trial study like this, um, you have to get approval from a, the Institutional Review Board. And so thinking about, well, what are our ethical considerations? It definitely helps with that process mm-hmm. and also like interacting with people and remembering to kind of keep um, all those th- those things in line. Yeah, I see. Um, last question I like to ask: What are your 
future plans? Uh, what's next in store for Charlotte? Only the future knows. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I did recently decide that I want to stay in academia and work towards becoming a professor. Sweet. Mainly because I really love teaching and mentoring. And so I want to be able to keep that as a key component. And I'm hoping to continue doing this sort of research, combining neurological neurological like injury with biomechanics and mm-hmm. like recovery and um, continue quantifying this in the rehab space. Mm-hmm. Um, so probably a postdoc to continue to gain some independent work for me, which is like you're a postdoc, but just in case the audience doesn't know, it's that opportunity to work on becoming a more independent researcher between the PhD and whatever comes next. Sometimes very independent, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. no, it's fun. It's, it's, um, I say it's probably one of the, most fun uh parts of you know if you're on academia track then um it's definitely fun because there's still not too many responsibilities like the professors usually get (laughs) on their shoulders right away uh but there's not uh not a lot of these kind of you know the pis being uh, on top of you and uh, like, well, we need to go this way or this way. It's it's a lot more um, freedom in that way. I love it. It's so a little terrifying. I but get to baby do steps. this. Look at that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. It was thanks for having me. Fun talking to you. <laughs> yeah. This episode was powered by Create, the Center for Research and Education on Accessible Technology and Experiences at the University of Washington, and Resna the Rehabilitation Engineering and Assistive Technology Society of North America. This is a big thank you to everyone who made it all the way to the end of this awesome episode of Gears of Progress. I hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to leave some love for it by rating on your favorite platform. And stay tuned for the next episode. Bye-bye.